from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Matot. This week's podcast is sponsored by Josh Tall in honor of his father, Avi Handelman's recent birthday. This week, Matot with Rabbi Alex Israel. Rabbi Alex Israel is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Alex Israel. Thank you, Larry. I'll start with a maybe inappropriate Jewish mother joke. Question, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, don't worry, I'll just sit here in the dark. Today we're going to talk about a story about misunderstandings, insults, rejection. And we're going to read Parashat Matot, chapter 32, the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, in a sort of novel way. So let's begin at the, at the start to try and describe the chapter. And then we'll give two readings in the chapter, and then we'll begin our analysis. The story begins with Bnei Israel, the Jewish people poised on the border of the Promised Land, um, waiting to enter Canaan, Eretz Israel. And at this point, two tribes come forward to speak to Moses. Bnei Ruvain or Bnei Gad. Ruvain and Gad come forward, and they say to Moses, um, this land is, is wonderful grazing land, wonderful shepherding land, and we've got loads of livestock. Um... We'd like to stay here. Al nata avirenu etayardain. We don't want to go over the Jordan. Moshe responds quite acerbically. First, he says, "Ha'achichem yavol lemilchama va'atem tishvupo." Do you think your brothers should go to war and you should stay here? How can you pretend not to fight with your brothers? You're you're going to. It's immoral. The nation is at war, and you're simply going to sit um, shepherding your flocks. That would simply be wrong. Moses has a second objection, though. He says, mm-hmm. If you stay here, you will discourage the rest of the people from going into the land. And he takes as his precedent the case of the spies, where a small number of people um, convinced everybody that it was inadvisable to enter the land. He says, this is exactly what happened with the spies. You're going to remain on this in the Transjordan. You're going to remain where you are. And everybody's going to suspect that going into Canaan is a mission impossible, and you're simply going to sabotage the entire project of entering Canaan. The people of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain are not deterred by Moses' objections, and it seems like they, are, they have a, a response. And their response is um, that we are willing to be the Chalutzim, we are willing to be the uh, advanced division in the army of Israel, we will not abandon our brethren to fights while we're sitting on the sidelines. We'll be the advanced troop. We will lead the tribes of Israel into battle. Second, we will not abandon our brethren until they're completely settled in the land of Canaan. We'll leave our women and children and our flocks here in Transjordan, but only when the war is entirely over will we return home. In this way, they counter uh, both of Moses' worries. On the one hand, they won't be abandoning the rest of the nation, weakening the army. They won't be seeing their uh, fellow Israelites fighting while they're sitting in a state of security. And second of all, they'll be clearly demonstrating that they're not intimidated by the military, um, by the military situation at hand, that they're not worried about going into the land of Canaan and they won't discourage anybody. Moses accepts their offer. 
and he holds them to to their condition. In fact, he makes a contract with them, which in rabbinic law is known as Tanai Bene Garu Bene Ruvain. It's what we might call in English a, a bulletproof contract, a watertight agreement, where um, he makes this this uh, arrangement with them, where they indeed will lead the troops into the land of Canaan and only settle down when everybody when the war is entirely over and the nation is at peace. And so the story uh, closes with this arrangement between Moses and the tribes of Gad and Ruvain. How should we assess this story? The first approach uh, looks at B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain in a very negative light. And this is the approach taken by the Midrash in Midrash Rabbah and adopted by Rashi, which essentially reads in the following way, that even though Moses made an agreement with them, really... Um, B'nai Gadam and Ruvain are obsessed with their material possessions, obsessed with money. They simply want to get rich and they're willing to trade the divine promise, the promised land, in order to fill their pockets. In this regard, they are seen in a, in a, in a very, very negative light. The first words of the of chapter 32 begin, O miknei rav haya and much cattle, much livestock was to Ruvain and Gad. The first words we hear is the word mikneh, the word koneh, possessions. These people are obsessed with money and they're willing to trade their legacy, their heritage, the divine promise for uh, to get rich. In fact, the Midrash, even though they managed to come to a deal with Moshe, takes a very negative stand against uh, Gad and Ruvain and even suggests that when the exile came, they were the first group to be exiled because they rejected the land. You rejected the land, says the Midrash. And therefore, even before Samaria, even before Jerusalem, you were the first group to be exiled, the tribes of the Transjordan. And this on the basis of a Pasuk in Divrei in Chronicles. And that's one read, which uh, sees um, these tribes as somehow selling out, rejecting uh, the special land of God. I think there is a lot of textual basis for this, but there's a lot of textual basis for another approach too, and that's this is the approach of uh, the Bechor Shor, the approach of the Abarbanel, who want to claim something very differently. Um, this group see B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain very intention. After all, Israel had gone to war, uh, you can read in, in chapter 21 of the Midbar, in the Transjordan, and God had delivered them the land. They had won the war. In fact, when they come to Moses, they say, God has given us this land, and we see it's good land for grazing. Oh, I, I wonder which tribes you were going to put there. Um, we're sheep farmers, and this is great sheep land. We volunteer to be here. It's almost as if they say, God gave us the land. He's not only giving us the land across the Jordan, he's also given this land in the Transjordan. We're volunteering to be the first to settle. Maybe in this regard, they really are pioneers. And in this read, uh, God and Ruvain are well-intentioned. They're not money-grabbing. They're not um, having incorrect priorities. In fact, according to this read, it is Moses who's sort of haunted by the failure of his earlier career, where he let the spies go to Canaan and they discouraged the people. And he starts, he's almost haunted by his past. And he's worried that the um, the tribes are going to discourage the nation. And they turn around and says, Moses, you don't understand. We were never thinking of abandoning our brethren. We always wanted to go into the land, but we see this land as almost an expansion of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the land which God gave us. 
and the land of Transjordan is the land which God gave us. And therefore, we are happy to stay here and we're not abandoning anyone. In this regard, God and Ruvain are virtuous and Moses is sort of, I don't know, an elderly leader who's um, living a little in the past, who's a little, what should I say? This is a misunderstanding in the, in the, in the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel says Moses didn't comprehend their intent. They were well-intended, but Moses is suspicious. And this is all about clearing up this misunderstanding. I find this fascinating because this story has a postscript. And the postscript is what happens many years later, after they have led the people in battle, after the nation of Israel have settled in the land of Canaan. Uh, Moses sends the two, the two and a half tribes, Reuven Gad, who are also joined by half of the tribe of Manasseh, and sends them home. And this you will find in the book of Joshua, Yehoshua, Perak Chafbet, chapter 22. And what happens there? The two and a half tribes go back to the Transjordan. And when they go back, they build an altar on the banks of the River Jordan. When the nine and a half tribes hear that the two and a half tribes in Transjordan have built an altar, they suspect them. And they say, and this is what the rumors go around in all of the newspapers, breaking headlines, the two and a half tribes have gone back to the Transjordan and they've established an altar. They must be doing idolatry. At this point, there is a tabernacle, a mishkan. Why are they building another altar other than the altar that we have? Why They must be adopting other gods. This is exactly what Moses warned us all about. And in fact, they send a delegation, um, 10 tribes, one for each tribe, led by Pinchas, go in order to investigate and in order to question the two and a half tribes. And when they come to the two and a half tribes, they say, El Elohim Hashem, El Elohim Hashem. What do you mean? We're not rejecting God. God knows that we aren't trying to reject him. The reason why we built an altar wasn't in all that. It, it's a monument. It's not a. It's not an altar in order to practice sacrifice. But they say, and again, I'm reading from chapter 22 in Joshua, verse 24. We're worried that we're going to move back to the Transjordan and you nations, you, sorry, you tribes in the land of Canaan are going to reject us. You're going to tell us we're not Jews. You live in Transjordan. There's a border between us. There's a river which runs between us. We are the tribes of Israel, and you two and a half tribes are not part of the body politic of the Jewish people. And therefore, we made an altar as a symbol and a monument that we are together with you in the same nation. We worship the same God. What am I seeing through these two stories? If I take the Abarbanel's read, the Bnei Gad and the Bnei Ruvain, uh, these two tribes, later joined by the half the tribe of Manasseh, maybe these two and a half tribes, are misunderstood by Moses. They said, we see this land as God-given land, and Moses sees them as rejecting the land of Canaan. Later, many years later, after the nation have already captured the land of Canaan and already settled there, once again, there is a misunderstanding. The two and a half tribes build an altar as a monument but the tribes of Israel in Canaan proper think that they're engaging in idolatry. They even mass troops waiting to attack them and to avenge this idolatry. And luckily, they engage in dialogue and things are brought into the open. And they say, no, 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 you misunderstood. 
So much misunderstanding, such a lack of communication. It seems to me that there is a deeper story here. What's, what's really going on? What's the story behind the story? And here I come to another co- comment of the Abarbanel, which I will read to you. And this is what he says. He says, Why did Ruven and Gad want to be in the Transjordan? Why? Ruven was the first of Jacob's children. He was the firstborn. And when Ruven saw that the firstborn status had been removed from him, and it had been given to Joseph and to Judah. In other words, Reuven is the firstborn of Jacob. He is the oldest of the 12 sons of Jacob. And yet, Reuven is passed over as the firstborn. And again, look at the book of Chronicles, chapter, the first book of Chronicles, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Reuven might be the firstborn, but the leadership is given to Judah and to Joseph. And therefore he did not want to settle with his brothers. Ruvain actually chose to live in Evahayardain, to live in Transjordan, because he was embarrassed. He was disgraced. He said, I am not going to go into the land of Canaan and be ruled by Judah, my younger brother, to be ruled by Joseph. If I've got to be ruled by them, I'd prefer to live in another territory. And therefore, Reuven states that it's all about sheep farming and it's all about what have you. But in fact, Reuven had a, a stain of embarrassment. He felt like he'd been deflected. He had been deferred. He had been passed over. And he is in a state of, the phrase of the Abarbanel is, a state of embarrassment, of shame. And he chose to settle in Transjordan, in order to live in security all alone, so that he should not see his humiliation, his denigration. And God joined him, and God joined him because they had encamped together in the wilderness. I find this whole dynamic quite fascinating. Let's go back in history and remember what happens with Ruvain. Ruvain indeed is the firstborn, but every time he makes a suggestion, it doesn't come to anything. If you remember in the story of the Joseph story, Ruvain first tries to make an attempt to save Joseph, but in the end, it's Judah's suggestion of selling Joseph, which is adopted. And Ruvain's attempts to save Joseph simply evaporate. Later on, when the brothers have to um, go down and procure grain, Ruvain's the first one to suggest, uh, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. And Jacob simply ignores Ruvain. And it is Judah who takes responsibility for Benjamin. Judah is the one who takes on the leadership and who is trusted by Jacob, not Ruvain. Jacob does not trust his eldest son. On his deathbed, he... um, says, Reuven Bechoriata, you are my firstborn son, the first of my strength, but you are pachas kamayim, you are impetuous like water, you are unstable like water, al-totar, you will not be given seniority. Um, this is to do with an episode um, where Reuven um, was sexually intimate with Bilha, Pilegash Aviv, with Bilha. We won't get into that episode because it's a much longer story. 
But let's simply say for our purposes that Ruvain is the firstborn in ancient society. The firstborn generally would mean that you led the family and instead Judah is chosen as the leader. Sometimes Joseph is chosen as the special representative of the family. Where's Ruvain? Nowhere to be seen. How does Ruvain react to all of this? How do the tribe of Ruvain feel? Even when they, we see, and here, we, here I jump to the book of Bamidbar, where we see the journeying of the Israelites, we see that the central column of the camp is Judah at the helm with his brothers, Issachar and Zavulun. And at the back, the tribes of Joseph, we see Ephraim, Manasseh, and Binyamin. Off to the sides are all the rejected tribes. Reuven, who's been rejected from the leadership. Shimon, who was cursed. And the tribes who came from the maidservants of Yaakov. It's almost as if in this family, there are first-rate sons and first-rate tribes and second-rate tribes. And maybe it's not surprising that later on, in the rebellion of Korach, uh, it is led amongst others, Korach himself, but it is led by Datan, Va'aviram, B'nai Eliav, Om Ben Pelet, B'nai Ru'uvein, that some of the ringleaders who try to remove Moses and Aaron from the leadership and establish a new order are from which tribe? From the tribe of Ru'uvein, almost as if Ru'uvein was trying to reassert its leadership to try and bring themselves back into that premier status to return to the status of the firstborn. However, the rebellion of Korach is put down, and Reuven, um, where do they take their humiliation? Where do they take their shame? Here we see that they decide, according to the Barbanel, that when it actually comes to the moment of settling, and they realize they aren't going to be given the most prestigious place in the land of Canaan, the hill lands of Canaan, the most prestigious area, are populated by Judah in the south, then Benjamin, then Joseph, tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Once again, Judah, Benjamin, and Joseph being in the um, elevated territory and in the prime real estate. And Ruvain probably suspected that as a tribe, they would be shunted to the periphery. And instead, what did they choose to do? They choose to say, you know what? We'll sit in the dark. We'll stay in Transjordan. I'd prefer to stay here than to move into the mainland of Canaan. Here, everybody will leave me alone. I'll feel like I'm my own balabait. I have my own dignity. I don't need to go with all the tribes. And in this regard, this is a very tragic story. And we see how sometimes um, misunderstandings come about. I'd say that behind all these misunderstandings that we see in the, in the readings that I gave in the opening segment of the class is the fact that Ruvain feels that they can't hold their heads high. The misunderstandings happen because there's not proper communication. Communication happens when people don't really want to face each other. And I feel like it's almost as if Ruvain was living apart in the beginning, was avoiding the rest of the tribes. Later on in the famous Song of Devorah, we find a situation in which the tribes in Canaan are in, are in trouble. And there's war in the territory of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, Devor, some of the tribes come to help, but many don't. And uh, what does uh, Devorah say about Reuven there? She says, Why did you sit there listening in the Transjordan to the bleating of your, ca- your cattle? You Reuven people, you were a bunch of cowards. You didn't come to help. In other words, 
uh, when Reuven say in, in Joshua chapter 22 that you are going to live in Canaan and one day you're going to tell us you're not even part of the Jewish people. There's a river between us. You live in a different land. You have a different God. You're not part of our nation. In a sense, it was a reflection of the way in which Reuven was feeling anyway. Reuven was already feeling deflected. He was already feeling rejected. And uh, he was Reuven was reflecting this by saying, you know, I already feel that I am apart from you. I've taken a decision to live apart from you. I do want us to be cousins. I want us to be brothers. But I know that at some point you're going to turn around to me and say we don't really belong. And tragically, um, at some points when Israel in Canaan are in distress, Ruvain don't even lift a finger to help. I'm not quite sure what we can learn from this, but maybe we can understand that, um, I guess anybody who reads Bereshit already knows this. Anybody who knows the history of our people know that there are deep, deep rifts and divisions. We are a family of 12 brothers, but not all 12 are quite in the best of relations with one another. And I think what we need to see and what we need to say here is that we have to be very aware and look at our brothers. This is on a level of within families, within communities, and within the Jewish people. When certain segments of the Jewish people, um, maybe living in different zones, feel rejected. Because when feel, people feel rejected, they themselves recede, they themselves move away, um, then communication lines go down. And once there's no communication, misunderstandings happen, insult intensifies, and things can reach tragic proportions. Um, and indeed, this is, there are many, many different reads of this chapter 30, 32. Perak Lamad Bet, Lamad Bet, Otiot Lev, right? Lamad Bet spells heart. And there's some broken hearts in this, in this chapter. And therefore, this should really be a cautionary tale of Jewish unity. Um, what happens when people do bear the scars of the past, the scars of rejection? Do we allow those people to move further away, or do we make an attempt to draw them near? In this story, tragically, when they come along with their suggestion, which in the read of the Abarbanel, as I see it, uh, they Ruven are coming along and saying, we don't want to settle with you in the land of Canaan. They're almost begging for love. They're almost begging for a hug. And in fact, the, what happens is that Moses actually accuses them and possibly rejects them even, even further. The irony, of course, is that they become the advanced troops. They're actually, it is Reuven and God who totally lead the nation into Canaan. They're the ones who actually are at the helm. They actually adopt the firstborn status. They are in the lead. They are the avant-garde. They are the ones who are going to um, be at the, at the helm of the army. It is so ironic that they adopt the leadership position and yet don't get any of the benefits. And at the end of the story, after they've led the army and they go home, they suffer from more accusations, more misunderstanding. Uh, indeed, if we say that they were the first to be exiled, uh, maybe they were the most vulnerable of all the tribes. I'm sorry I don't have such good news, but our aim is to learn from our past. Our aim is to learn from our Tanakh. And if we hear this tale and the message really enters into our ears and our hearts, maybe we could ensure that there are other sectors of the Jewish people who sometimes feel vulnerable, who feel that they are in the wings, deflected and insulted. Maybe we can ensure that we draw them near and bring them into the center rather than allowing them to sit 
in the dark. Wishing you all a Shabbat Shalom. I'll say that we are entering, we are, this is the first Shabbat in the three weeks. And the three weeks traditionally is a time uh, where we commemorate the destruction of our nation. And we talk about the fact that, um, at least in the second temple, the Talmud tells us, was destroyed because of infighting between the Jewish people. As a response, we talk about this as a period in which we should be thinking more about Jewish unity and cohesion within our nation. So I guess this should be an appropriate uh, shiur, an appropriate Devar Torah, to let us think a little bit about these issues. Uh, wishing you all a Shabbat Shalom, and uh, hope to learn with you very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Israel. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.